I don't know if you knew this, but the world of podcasting is massive. Hi, I'm Leah. I'm the host of CBC's Podcast Playlist. There is such a constant avalanche of new releases, it can be hard to keep up. Luckily, Podcast Playlist can help. Every week, we deep dive into the podcast world to find the most compelling stories. And every month, we'll give you a sneak peek into the hottest new releases so you can stay ahead. Tune in to Podcast Playlist on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Sometimes even an exploding bullet leaves only a tiny mark. Likewise, all I remember from that war is how one day, towards the end, a horse fell off a platform when a train took a turn. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. In a time of war, a poet sits down to write, but no words come. Freedom's such a thing. Nobody's going to get it for you. Nobody will give you freedom. You won't get it as a present for yourself. You can't wait for it to arrive. What is a poet's job except to write, to bear witness, to try to give some sense of meaning when the bombs drop and the fires rage? That night, I fell asleep in the bathtub in a bucket of blankets and pillows listening to the most powerful explosions here since the beginning of the war. Ostap Slavinsky is that poet. And that silence is what came over him when the war in Ukraine began. He found he had nothing to say. Language and words let him down when he needed them most. Observing the houses, we saw smashed kitchens, remnants of bedrooms, wallpapers from children's rooms, pieces of mirrors from bathrooms. But then the words did come. Instead of finding words, they found him, given by the people coming through the railway station in Lviv, the thousands fleeing the carnage in the east, looking for a shelter, a meal, a guide to the road forward. It was as if I lay on a cloud. I could hear noises in my head. My body became so light. And that was when I felt the smell of my own blood. Volunteering to help. Ostap Slavinsky has been hearing their stories and collecting them into what he calls a dictionary of war. Dwellings, Dmitro, cave. Observing the houses, we saw smashed kitchens, remnants of bedrooms, wallpapers from children's rooms, pieces of mirrors from bathrooms. As we looked at them, we realized that some of the owners of these apartments had been saving money for half of their lives to build and fill these dwellings. Some of them were probably planning to spend their whole lives there. We saw a billboard in front of one of the buildings that read, At last, some affordable space for you. I'm Ostap Slavinsky. I'm translator, poet, literary scholar, university teacher, and a volunteer during the wartime. And when you volunteer, what have you done? It was uh, generally helping uh, forcibly displaced persons from the frontline regions. I was volunteering at the temporary shelters for these people, at the train station, at the different transport hubs, everywhere uh, where the people uh, needed assistance and help. 
What is it that drew you to doing this as opposed to, you know, a number of other possible roles in the war? Yes, you really have to to choose your role in the war. Of course, my first idea, a very obvious one, was to join the armed forces. And I rushed to the military enlistment office as, uh, I think, thousands of uh, of my friends, colleagues, people from my country. But, um, of course, the, the armed forces didn't, didn't need so many people at once. <laughs> so they sent me back uh, home to wait for a notice. And I understood that existence being at the wartime does not necessarily mean fighting with weapons, with arms in my hands. And there are also um, very many different needs around other demands and challenges. And uh, almost immediately, very many people from the frontline regions began to come to arrive to my city which is located in the western part of Ukraine, 70 kilometers from the Polish border, from the border with the European Union. And uh, it was natural that the people were moving in this direction. It was uh, a a huge number of people, about 10,000 of people were passing through the train station in Lviv every day. And they needed assistance, they needed information, they needed food, hot drinks, and information. And those who decided to stay in my city for a longer time, they needed some shelter. And of course, it was a huge number of roles I could play in these in these times, beginning with making tea or coffee and finishing with listening to the people's stories. So when you did get into conversation with them, what would you ask them? It was very spontaneous. Uh, I understood very quickly that you have to be a psychologist while uh, talking to uh, people who went through a very traumatic experience. And there were many topics I tried to avoid. For example, the topics uh, regarding their past, their home, everything they had left behind and everything that could trigger them in any way. And of course, another triggering topic could be their future because no one could predict anything in these days. And uh, these people usually didn't have any plans. The future was something very scary for them. And the safest uh, and most obvious option was to talk about the present things, the very mundane things, very usual, average things like uh, their food preferences, for example, something of this sort. Something neutral. But inevitably, the conversation would turn towards what they had left behind. Yes, they were. Sometimes they were eager to share even uh, their heaviest experiences. It should be their will. It, it should be their decision. I never asked them about what they went through while escaping from the shelled cities or from their destroyed houses. But many of them were eager to tell about even the the most cruel experiences. And they, they needed someone who was, in fact, a stranger. I was a completely new person. My personality did not play a decisive role in these situations. For them, it was important that I was someone uh, who was ready to listen to them. 
And it was also important to me that in my in my person they saw uh, someone who could provide comfort and quietness and safety. I was a kind of synonym of safety for them. It was very demanding. And of course, you have to provide a situation of safety, this feeling of safety for someone if you want a person to share share the story. Chalk. Valeri, cave. One day in the cave region, we dropped by a school that served as a base for the Russians. We found a lot of different stuff there. Their documents, their abandoned belongings. And they wrote all kinds of bullshit on the school's blackboards. And then we went down to a semi-basement where some technical facilities were. They were holding their abducted hostages there. Maybe they interrogated them in there too. I can feel such places. It's impossible to stay there, as though some hand keeps pushing you out. And then I saw words written on a wall of one of those rooms with a piece of chalk. Help. Katya. Just that. And a piece of chalk in the corner. It might have been that same piece those words had been written with. I took that piece of chalk with me, as if that piece could help me find Katya. If she is still alive, of course. I kept picturing it like that in my head. Are you Katya? Oh, this is your piece of chalk? I found it at school. Let me help you. Funny, isn't it? So tell me about the resulting project, which is the Dictionary of War. This is the collection of the fragments of monologues of the displaced persons. Dictionary of War is uh, it's a lit, it's, it's a documentary project on one hand, but on the other hand it's a literary project because my, uh, my main goal was not to present the strictly documentary text which would show everything what I had heard from my interlocutors, but to choose the most powerful fragments, the most powerful, most universal fragments, episodes of these stories, and the fragments which could have a universal meaning and also some kind of literary value. That's why it's also literature, maybe even poetry in some sense. But why put it into a dictionary form? What's the message in putting into a dictionary form? First um, reason was very simple, uh, because the dictionary means that all the entries in this book should be presented in the alphabetical order. And therefore, the stories in the book would be equal, because it was very diff- difficult for me to decide which story should be the first, uh, which story was more important or less important. All these stories, even very short fragments, were equal from the point of view of its um, human value. Even very short conversations were very meaningful. I felt them as very meaningful. Even, Even two phrases, I know, are a couple of words. But uh, the, the second argument was, uh, it comes from the idea of 
uh, of the whole book because it's uh, it's focused on words, the meaning of some words. That's why all these stories, all these fragments of the monologues, are presented as uh, explanations of some words. Explanations not in the usual dictionary meaning, but explanations with a narrative. People telling their stories uh, at, the, at the same time explain some words. And maybe perhaps redefine them, of course, as well. Uh, redefine, yes. Redefinition, because what I, um, I was observing, I, I was not seeing, listening to the people, was a changing of these meanings. People unconsciously were using usual words in an unusual sense, unusual meaning. I, I want to use an example as we're having this discussion, and maybe even starting with the very first word, apples. What do you remember about how this woman redefined the word apple? It was a very touching story for me. I did not hear it in live conversation, as most of these stories, but I, I received it in a written form already. Different people began to join the project after I had published the first the first fragments of these uh, of these monologues. Many people who read these stories in, on my Facebook page decided to join the project, and this uh, this story was written by a young woman who decided to join the project, and it was very touching because it was a, a memory from the peaceful times. Uh, she was thinking about the sound of falling apples in the garden during the peaceful times. And the apples have changed their meaning. There are no more apples like this during wartime. Apples. Anna Kiev. That night I fell asleep in the bathtub in a bucket of blankets and pillows listening to the most powerful explosions here since the beginning of the war. Long ago, in the past life, I was crazy in love, and we went to a house in the Carpathian Mountains. It was deep in autumn. We fell asleep in an attic in a bed that was not much more comfortable than the bathtub, and I listened to apples hitting the ground everywhere in the garden. The slamming of the large, ripe apples continued at a measured pace throughout the night. I was happy. Now I fall asleep to the explosions and I hear those apples. I so badly wanted to be those garden apples hitting the ground around us. In the collection Words for War, you have a poem titled Orpheus about this lonely child who's afraid of water. And near the end, you write... You know at what point music comes out of anger like a butterfly emerging out of a frostbitten cocoon. And then you end with, how much anger can a poem hold just enough to drown out the sirens? Is that part of what's driving your project, the dictionary project, just kind of a deep anger to which only art or writing has an answer? Yes, the literature can hold a lot of, a lot of anger a lot of uh, maybe not hatred because uh, we often think about the meaning of the words 
during wartime. <laughs> it's not obvious, but the war really changes the attitude to the world, of course. It changes the reality very profoundly. And therefore, it also changed the language. And we, as if, became more attentive to the words we use. We became more careful with metaphors, with images, with imagery, because the metaphors can hold very often some uh, unwanted meanings. For example, many of my colleagues who work with language people of letters, so let's call them. We, we often used some military metaphors before the war, before the full-scale invasion. One, one of my interlocutors confessed that uh, he had used phrases like, it's a bomb, and the meaning that it's something very cool, <laughs> very, very good, or very intense. We can't, we can't afford using these metaphors anymore, this kind of metaphors. Uh, and also we uh, became, became very attentive to the difference between meanings. For example, the, the word hatred, the word anger, the word, the word that you used, and the other words like fury or rage. I think that Ukrainian literature, Ukrainian poetry in particular, of the last year, can seem aggressive a little bit to someone who hasn't experienced living within the war. But there is no hatred in this poetry. Uh, I'm very sensitive to such things. And of course, I, I cannot accept hatred, but it's not hatred, it's fury. This is the emotion I re can really see and notice in Ukrainian literature uh, of 2022-2023, mostly poetry, because poetry is more dynamic, is more flexible, it's more reactive. It reacts quick, quicker than, than prose or, I don't know, big fiction. Does, does the fury and the anger eclipse other emotions like sadness, for example? Or uh, No, <laughs> no, I would put it in different boxes because uh, it's also very surprising how many emotions humans had, humans' mind can hold at the same time simultaneously. Okay. We can That's true. we can feel yeah. fury, yeah. sadness. We can mourn our dad, and uh, at the same time we can we can feel some kind of determination, rage to survive. And it's striking, it's surprising how the po the poem, even a short poem can express these wide range of emotions at the same time uh, in several words. So how does how does the war change your own writing? How does it morphed over the last year or so? It became less uh, less metaphoric. <laughs> That's because of of these things we 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 have already uh, talked about. It's because we we became more suspicious to mm, metaphor. The, the imagery is uh, simpler. It expresses rather visible things, not imagined. Uh, less fantasy, of course. The fantasy gives room to observation, to the visible world. And I think that there is less my own voice in, in my texts and more other people's voices. Well, you said at the beginning of the war that you couldn't even write at all. Yes, it's that's 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 terrible. That's terrible for someone who 
considers himself a, a man of letters. You know? It's uh, it's terrible. I could not find words. I I felt like I was mute totally, and that's that was one of the reasons why I decided to collect these stories to compile this uh, dictionary of war, consisting of other people's words. I could not find my own words. All of my words turned out to be completely improper and completely unready to express this new reality, which was hard to believe that it is reality. It looked like a kind of nightmare, not not a reality. Cave, Roman Chernihiv. My whole life, I was into speleology. When I had a free weekend, I would pack my gear and go exploring caves. There's a large bomb shelter in our neighborhood under a school. For the first couple of days, there was no light there. I came in wearing a headlamp. It was quiet inside. It seemed that there was no one there. And suddenly, I saw people. I saw children crammed in by the walls. All those people were like stalagmites and stalactites. It seemed as though they had been there for thousands of years. That's what war does to time. I, I, I'm just trying to think of how productive it is to kind of go to your fellow countrymen when, when what you, you do always to express yourself is not possible. You get them to help you out. It was very important for, for these people that I gave them the possibility to tell their stories. One of my discoveries during the first weeks of uh, full-scale war was a human need to share the story, to tell the story. It's one of the basic needs, along with the need for food, water, some warm place to spend the night. Somewhere on the fourth place after these most basic needs is... uh, this need to tell the story. Almost all the people I I met uh, for maybe a longer time, for the people who lived in these shelters, even those very traumatized, very silent, as if coming out of this of the silence, there necessarily uh, was a moment when they were beginning to to talk. Almost everyone, children adults and interesting that it's uh, it's easier to establish a contact with the, with adults through their children the children is a kind of mediator between two adults in this uh, dramatic situation me uh, someone who was a host and the the people who were the guests they began to to talk following their their children who were more open and it's it's a it's a separate very interesting topic how how children experience the war what is their attitude i'm not maybe completely ready to make any conclusions yet but uh, um, i have collected some very interesting experiences i can just imagine children are are far more prone to be natural philosophers than than adults can <laughs> so i'm sure you've heard some interesting stories i wanted to ask you this just to end off this part is that anyone who's ever 
spent time in a war zone and no less those who are in a war zone that is their own country have to rethink the word beauty. Uh, beauty. And I know, <laughs> yeah, I know you have, mm -hmm. and that it's also included in your dictionary. Yes, beauty is one of, um, one of the words that have changed their meanings very, very, uh, very deeply. The story was um, told by a young woman who felt the danger of beauty, of being beautiful during the, the wartime and uh, felt endangered after having left her home and being on um, the open space, <laughs> the street of the occupied town. It was in one of those these occupied towns near Kyiv. Uh, she suddenly felt that her beauty, her natural beauty, is uh, something inevitable and something dangerous, something that can provoke the occupiers. And she decided that, uh, she understood that she has to hide. It was something which resembles the stories we know from the, the Jews during Holocaust, especially those beautiful Jewish women were the, those ones who had to hide, uh, first of all, because this beauty was dangerous. Now, there was a huge, um, a huge risk of rape during the occupation or any other kinds of violence, especially towards women. And that, that's, that's how beauty became dangerous. But the, the, the final sentence of this story is very surprising uh, and shocking a little bit because she, the, the hero and the narrator of this story, receives a message on her mobile phone that you are registered for um, beauty salon. Please remember that you have a visit scheduled for tonight. And this is this is um, a new meaning, an old and a new meaning of beauty. Beauty, Katarina Vishwarat. I read a story about the Second World War not so long ago. There was this girl who wore her mom's worst clothes to pass by Nazis unnoticed, so I would be enraged. I paused near my wardrobe. Is it time to wear the worst already? Or can I still make it? Things change so quickly. The caps are not coming. Either the line is busy or they refuse. I will just walk to Kiev. In a time of war, beauty becomes dangerous. Beautiful things, people, relationships, nowadays they don't exist to inspire. They exist to be annihilated. Not for admiration and loving touches, but for pain. My boots get stuck in the mud along the highway. My phone beeps with an SMS. You have just visited our beauty parlor for a manicure. Please leave a review. So that was her definition, redefinition of beauty. How have you redefined beauty? Beauty is something which uh, plays a saving role in such situation. The beauty is something which can seem improper. In fact, beauty is something which uh, leaves hope that that everything everything would come to normal finally very vulnerable a beauty as the hope itself is very vulnerable beauty is something uh, something which suffers one of the first things which suffer 
being destroyed during the the wartime because war is war is ugly the ugliness is is the one of the main features of war it's very hard to find something beautiful during wartime but because it's so ugly when you do find something beautiful it sticks out a lot more than it normally would yes yes and you you uh, the people begin to appreciate beautiful things more than they used to do it before you're listening to ideas on cbc radio 1 we're a podcast and a broadcast heard on cbc radio 1 in canada across north america on sirius xm in Australia on ABC Radio National and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. In 2017, the writers Oksana Maksimchuk and Max Rosachinsky published Words for War, an anthology of poetry exploring the ongoing war in eastern Ukraine in a variety of voices, from the front lines, the home, the hospital. In one of his poems from that anthology, Ostap Slavinsky writes, Sometimes even an exploding bullet leaves only a tiny mark. In the horrors of war, he's suggesting, it's the small things that stand for the whole. A tiny bullet hole may be the only evidence of destruction, and words themselves change their meaning. In a place where words of his own failed him, this is a program about Ostap Slavinsky's project to collect the words found by so many ordinary Ukrainians in time of war. This is A Dictionary of War. Far close, Yanina, Kyiv. Far is a distance between Kyiv and Vinnytsia through long lines to gas stations and roadblocks. A bed and a hallway during explosions. A place where you are at and a place where there is no fear. Close is a distance to each direct hit of enemy projectiles. Not far enough to not be afraid to die. A distance between Vinnytsia and Kyiv in a car with two cats without pet carrier bags. You wrote a thesis about silence in uh, Bulgarian writing. Is there any sense in which this project, you know, collecting the stories of other people, is you taking on silence yourself and giving language back to people whose lives have been shattered? Silence is very... uh, uh, it's one of the things I'm I'm thinking about all the time, uh, because silence is one of the words which uh, have changed their meaning. Also, uh, silence is something inevitable. Sometimes we were talking about about children during wartime, and uh, I think you, you you have never seen so many silent children in one place for so long time. 
I saw them uh, in, in in these shelters. I saw the the, the 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 children keeping silence for hours, almost without moving. They were just so shocked and so so confused that they didn't know how to react. And even such uh, natural reactions for children, like cry. I did not see it. It was very shocking. And of course, there's always a lot of silence behind every story I heard from these people. It's a disturbing type of silence. Yes, yes, very disturbing. And silence silence is very disturbing itself uh, during wartime because uh, you never know what is hiding behind silence. When you have no internet connection, no phone connection, when you do not receive messages for longer time, in fact, it's silence. You begin to feel stressed. You feel uh, this this fear as a wave, uh, the wave which is coming, uh, and and uh, you can be drowned. It's I felt it physically. The silence when when the connect the, all the communications are out, and this is a different different kind of silence. When you feel it physically, what does it feel like? Uh, a feeling of drowning, a lack of oxygen. Silence, Ulana, Lviv. The puppet theater became a shelter for a displaced. We put mattresses on its stages, in its halls, in its foyer. In the beginning, there were lots of people with children and animals. For two days straight, they were lying silently on those mattresses. I have never seen so many silent people and animals in one place. Then they livened up a little, but I will never forget the silence. It was scary. You've also written, the stories I hear feel like pieces of different puzzles that have been mixed together, which suggests that the stories were more different than the same. Can you talk about that? Basically, the stories I heard, they were often similar because people had experienced uh, more or less the same, shelling, the need to escape, to leave their homes, the long, exhausting way with a lot of stressing moments while crossing the checkpoints, the enemy's checkpoints, where you never know what, what would happen. Whether, whether you would cross this checkpoint safe or whether you survive or not. We, we can only imagine how stressing it could be. But um, while listening to, to these stories, I could not use any notebook or, or voice recorder. It seemed rather improper to me in this situation. So I could rely only on my memory. And maybe it's uh, nature of memory that I remembered the most unusual fragments of these stories and the very individual ones, the fragments in which people shared some very personal thoughts or very personal impressions. And uh, these, from the one hand, we, we understand that there is something else behind these fragments, that this is the fragment of some very traumatic, very, very hard story. From the other hand, these these fragments sometimes, they, they are in kind of contrast with the whole, sometimes very beautiful or very naive 
or philosophically deep, very touching, um, sentimental. And maybe the whole the, the general impression the dictionary of war makes is it can be surprising because you do you do not expect beauty or humor from the war stories. You know? But there is there is a lot of beauty, a lot of love, and even quite much humor in it. Of course, you know that about the the soil from which these fragments grow. But one of my goals was to show different phases of war. That for, war is not only mourning, is not only suffering, uh, is not only grief and depression. It's also can also be the moment of joy, uh, of relaxation, even uh, of humor. Yeah. I I noted with interest in your intro when you're presenting the book that you talk about, you know, kind of asking yourself that as you engage in these conversations, you wondered what it is that you hope to gain from them. I would have thought that you would have gained perhaps a better understanding of war. But you say also you've written, it's impossible to truly understand war when you listen to personal stories, which which as a journalist, I find really hard to relate to. Why, why do you think that is? To understand the war. <laughs> the problem is that it's basically very hard to understand the war. The war is, uh, it is something which is in country with any sense. It's senseless, basically. You can understand the, the motivations of individual people in, in certain situations. You can understand uh, the logical reasons of some individual episodes, but you cannot understand war as a whole. It's something which is a way of any reasonable thinking. What about how people respond to it? Is Are there some lines that you see, some similarities in, in as you collect these stories and how people respond to the act of war? One of the most important things I, I understood was... Uh, because it, you cannot usually see it in any everyday situations. How important can the values, the abstract, non-material values be for, for people? The values like freedom, for example, the value of memory. One of the most powerful stories, short monologues I heard, during the first week of full-scale invasion war, was about freedom. It was told about by by um, the person who looked in a very usual way. He was a guy who came to Ukraine right after he had learned about the the Russian invasion. He was Ukrainian, but he had lived for a, years abroad without any relatives or or friends uh, in Ukraine anymore. He had left it behind very many years ago. But he decided that he, have to, he had to come and to defend his country. His identification with Ukraine was still, was still very strong. And uh, people talk about these roots, about these ties with uh, the country. The idea of motherland can seem very abstract. What means motherland? We can we can easily talk about our neighborhood, native town or native city, about places we remember from 
our childhood, for example. But what means motherland as a political idea? What? But in, in such situation, it becomes meaningful because the thing this guy was thinking about was not was not his neighborhood, his town. It was the country he had to defend. It was his idea. It's abstract, but on the other hand, it's very it's very material in such situation. Freedom, Vadim Konotop. Freedom's such a thing. Nobody's going to get it for you. Nobody will give you freedom. You won't get it as a present for yourself. You can't wait for it to arrive. You only get to make it for yourself. Yes, handmade. There are no freedom factories. It's not batch production. You said, I once thought to myself that no matter what my interlocutors were discussing, they were all talking about freedom. Freedom to have their own space, to live their lives as they wish, and to choose their words. And so, if that's the case... Is there any sense in which this dictionary that you've prepared is a kind of declaration of Ukrainian independence? Yes, I think in in some in in some sense it is. It is the declaration of liberation of language as well. It's very important to choose the words you want to use uh, when no words are imposed. Using one's own words, describing our lives with our own words is very important. This is one of the synonyms of freedom, I think. And this, this is what, what uh, is totally different from the situation in the authoritarian countries like Russia, where you cannot choose which words you use, uh, at least publicly. Your life is as if being described by the other person, some authorities, they choose the proper words for you. So can we just switch gears a little bit and talk, we talked about how the war has changed your writing, but these are tiny short stories in the war, in the war dictionary, and they kind of have the intensity and the force of poetry. But when you look around you to what's happened to writing by your colleagues, can you talk about what's changed for them in their writing? They react in a very different way. Some of them feel something very similar to what I felt uh, at the beginning of war, this lack of words. Uh, some of them keep trying different other ways to extra- express themselves, for example, painting or volunteering. Uh, for example, one of my good friends, uh, writer Andriy Lupka, is a very active volunteer now. He uh, he buys the cars for the armed forces. He has bought, for the moment, more than 120 cars, trucks, pickups for Ukrainian military forces. And he has decided to offer his his writing, his creativity to this civil activity. This was his decision, and it deserves deep esteem, I think, yeah, because it's it's really a um, it's kind of offering. For someone who is a writer, <laughs> because you, yeah, very different. You are ready, yeah. yeah, yeah. You you are ready to you are ready to refuse from from writing for some for some time. Uh, the other people, uh, my colleagues, um, I feel sometimes even uh, a little bit envious because they they write very much and they react. They find the proper words. I have um, a very good friend who is a poet. 
and my neighbor <laughs> she lives in a, in a, in a house uh, uh, very close to to my home and sometimes we of course we uh, when when there are air raid uh, alarms air raid sirens and we hide in the basements uh, she very often posts a new, a brand new poem written during this uh, air alarm, <laughs> and I, 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 I really uh, sometimes I feel surprised. I feel surprised how and where does she find these words in in such situation? Because I could, I cannot uh, while hiding in, in in the basement. I cannot, I cannot write poetry, but she she can. Uh, so it, it's really very, very different. It's very individual. Blood, Maria Chernihiv. It was as if I lay on a cloud. I could hear noises in my head. My body became so light. And that was when I felt the smell of my own blood. It was so weird. I guess that was what rescued me. The days of the fear. Maybe blood is like gas. It smells in order to scare you. And it was as if it's woken up. I started moving. I signaled that I was alive. The volunteer guys that were saving me told me 10 seconds more and you could die of blood loss. I see a lot of blood these days. I'm not afraid of it. I'm just seeing it around. Had there been as much blood around before as well? Even when I look at the map of our occupied territories, they mark them in red, in pinkish red. It seems as if the map is bleeding from its edges. Someone once said that journalism is about finding out things that people don't know and then telling them. You kind of alluded to this at the beginning. Is this new writing out of Ukraine a kind of journalism? I once met a poet, an Iranian poet, who called herself like a war correspondent in verse. Is that kind of what you're doing? A new kind of journalism, letting the people, letting the world know? I think that many of us uh, became correspondents in different ways. Our reality became so weird, so unbelievable that it looks like fiction a little bit. But on the other hand, our fiction, poetry, describing the reality becomes more and more documentary. The line between fiction and fact is is less and less strict. I, I remember the, the words written by Hanna Kral, uh, one of the most prominent Polish journalists and reporters. Once she said that she felt lucky that she was a reporter, not a writer, because she could afford telling about the incredible, unbelievable things. If she was a fiction writer, nobody would believe her. Her writing would seem exaggerations, would seem something tasteless. But describing reality, and everybody knows it's reality, uh, she can afford writing about even the most incredible things. But really, the, the, the reality sometimes is, is more incredible than any fantasy. In an interview with the Polish novelist Olga Tokarczyk, you said, I hate the word peace. When Russians use the word peace and not the words war, aggression, it's too neutral. Effectively, you're saying that language loses its meaning entirely in war. 
Yes, peace is one of uh, one of the words which uh, become more and more suspicious, just because the Russian propaganda, not only Russian propaganda, aggressive propaganda in general, very often misuses this this word. Uh, just peace, fair peace, is something meaningful, but peace as it is has has no value. Uh, peace as just uh, laying down arms in the situation of frozen conflicts, uh, unsolved conflict, has no meaning, no sense. We're getting uh, towards the end, but before we do, I was hoping you could um, read a poem for us uh, from Words of War, 1918, perhaps? Okay, 1918. Sometimes even an exploding bullet leaves only a tiny mark. Likewise, all I remember from that war is how one day, towards the end, a horse fell off a platform when a train took a turn, and there was no one to come back for him, no one to pick him up from below the embankment. Kids gave him grass, and he lay there with broken legs and a dull eye, charcoal black, like a sign left by the retreating night to mark a path for the night that was to come. Does it feel like there's still night to come? Uh, no. <laughs> no. I'm feeling uh, some light approaching, coming at this moment, unlike it was uh, a year ago. And in your writing, is that coming through? Yes. Joy. Masha Kostantinivka Ivano-Frankevsk. Here I am often being asked, where does all the joy inside me come from? Why am I feeling happy? Sometimes this question comes with a grain of reproach. And for a reason, because in all reality, I have nothing and no one left. Just my little one, Sasha. And then, all of a sudden, it just dawned on me like a revelation. They took everything from me, but they do not have any right to steal my days. And that's where I stop thinking like everyone else does. Just a little more patience and we will win. And then we will start living our lives again. No, this is our life and we're not going to have any other one. And our victory will not be like that classic waking up after a bad dream. I'm home. Everything is all right. It's never going to be like that ever again, because this is not a dream. There is no home anymore. And that was when I took the plunge. I will be doing my best for the victory, but I will not give them any of my days away. There won't be a single day of me lying on the ground and suffering. I will rejoice just to spite them. That's right. A joy out of anger. Yes. What do you think the war has revealed to people in Ukraine about themselves, both as individuals, but also as a country, as a nation? Uh, a new new sense of unity, um, new feeling of the common space, the country, the state, not as some, some institution, but as a living space where everyone is important and everyone can contribute 
to the safety and future of this common space. This is new, completely brand new feeling, and it's very, very important. It's uh, it's reflected in, in another excerpt from one of your poems, which I can read um, back to you. You say, it's up to us, the crawling vines to set roots for our homeland, this off-market real estate, this overheated wall beside which we were born. It's up to you, Brother Ivy. It's up to you, Fertile Vine. It's up to you, Climbing Rose. So beautiful. It's It sounds like a call to arms, you know, for the people of Ukraine to really dig in and become engaged in creating a new nation. You cannot choose the place where you are born, but you can choose the way you define yourself in this space. This is, this is I think, the inevitability of, of being in this place. Not the best one, not the worst one. The, the place which needs our, our help, our assistance, and our presence, our, our physical presence. I truly can't thank you enough, not just for the writing that you do, but for bringing us these incredible stories and these new meanings for words that we take for granted. Thank you. Thank you. Bill. Andriy Lviv. Pain. Andriy Lviv. Jak pachne Bill? What does pain smell like? Zazwyczaj... Usually, the entire range of what pain smells like can be felt in one of those emergency evacuation vehicles. First and foremost, pain smells like a butchery section at a market. It smells of freshly butchered meat. It smells of blood, this sweet smell with a hint of metal to it. Pain also smells of sweat, of a body unwashed for days, of a whiff of alcohol and various iodine solutions, plus some chlorine. And on top of it all is a smell of smoke from a battlefield, coffee and cigarettes. The smell of pain is unforgettable. On Ideas, you've been listening to A Dictionary of War, about the poet Ostap Slavinsky and his project to collect the stories that Ukrainians are telling him about themselves. At present, only sections of the project can be found online, but A Dictionary of War is shortly to be published as a book. In the meantime, the anthology Words for War, New Writing from Ukraine is published by Academic Studies Press. A Dictionary of War was produced by Philip Coulter. Readings were by Mark Marchik and Marichka Marchik. Our thanks to them. If you'd like to comment on anything you've heard in this episode or in any other, you can do that on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, where, of course, you can always get our podcast. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer of Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.